I imagine by now the seasickness must have worn off. You know, after months at sea, shipwrecks and stormy gales, it has a way of wearing off. Constant vertigo, unbalance, trying to find your footing when all the world inside and out is a constant rock and sway. I imagine by now the seasickness must have worn off. They sailed into the Bay of Naples and then made their way up to Rome. Well, almost. The fanfare along the way prevented such ease of travel. Apparently, the cat was out of the bag. The news had leaked like a sieve. Paul, the apostle, was on his way to Rome. And here he was, given a hero's welcome. Christian brothers and sisters had left Rome and traveled some 40 miles to the south to meet Paul at the Forum on the Appian Way. And here he was given a hero's welcome. Others had left Rome and traveled some 30 miles to meet Paul at the Three Taverns. Sounds like a cozy pub, but it's actually the name of a village some 33 miles outside of Rome. And here he was given a hero's welcome. But it was more than that. It was more than a hero's welcome. It was an emperor's welcome. For this is the style of kings, people coming outside of the city to meet the conqueror, only then to enter back into the city with the conqueror. This is the style of kings, of emperors. These were emotion-packed meetings, as you well may imagine. After all, he had previously written to the Christian brothers and sisters of Rome at length to lay out a clear teaching on the gospel he preached, to bridge the cultural divide between the Jews and Gentile non-Jews. He wrote to establish a base from which to go further, to carry the good news to Spain, to the edge of their known world at the time. But this was his first and only visit to Rome. And here, as he set foot in the capital of the Roman Empire, upon the streets of the most influential city on earth, in the shadow of the magnificent architecture of the governing center of the entire known world, here he was given a hero's welcome in the style of kings, in the style of emperors, but Paul was in chains, a prisoner of the empire. It's here, according to Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31, that Paul lives for the next two years or so under house arrest, 
welcoming all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts closes with the following line, and no one tried to stop him. Happily ever after, right? Preaching the good news on house arrest, not quite. They beheaded him uh, between the years 62 and 64 AD. But something that Paul had previously written to the Christian brothers and sisters of Rome had stirred their hearts to give Paul a hero's welcome in the style of kings and emperors. It was the word of God through Paul. The letter to the church of Rome, also known as the book of Romans. It's what the great reformer Martin Luther called the door and key to the Holy Scriptures. And I pray that as we embark on this journey, in the face of life's shipwrecks and stormy gales, where the circumstances of life leave us wobbly with constant vertigo and unbalanced on our own two feet, I pray that regardless, we would give the book of Romans a hero's welcome in our hearts and in our minds, in the style of kings and emperors. I pray that we would make the effort to go out and welcome the word of God in. Would you stand with me if you're able to stand and we'll read from the first verse of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans 1.1 says, This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Lord, tonight as we open up this letter to the church at Rome, I pray that we would be changed. God, most of the scriptures we memorize and know come from the book of Romans. A lot of the heart-stirring passages that have affected people throughout the ages come right from this letter. I pray, Lord, we would be equally affected today. I pray that you would receive glory today. That as we begin this, as we embark on this journey, no matter what happens, no matter who shows up, no matter who continues to be faithful, I pray, Lord, you would, you would receive honor and glory. For we know when your word goes forth, it does not come back empty or void. So stir in our hearts today. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So before we dive into Romans chapter 1, we're going to set up a balanced, vertigo-free foundation by talking about a lot of historical background to the book of Romans. So it's going to sound kind of like a teacher's class and all of that stuff. Some of you guys like, some of you guys hate. Uh, but just the more you pay attention, maybe take notes, the more you, you follow along, the more you might actually get out of it. 
But we're going to talk about Paul, his letters, this letter to the Romans specifically, and specifically what is its date, its origin, its audience, and purpose. Things that don't really seem maybe all that important to our everyday lives here today, but it's actually really important if we're going to apply these scriptures to our lives and see how it just comes alive. So first, who's Paul? Well, he used to be called Saul. Saul the Pharisee who based his life on the Old Testament scriptures. He had believed that if he kept the Old Testament law, also known as Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, name them with me. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You guys are so smart. So he based his life on the Torah, believing that if he kept the Old Testament law, it would hasten, it would bring about the coming kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Sounds like a, guy, a nice idea. He felt that it was his job to obey the law in great detail and to defend it. He had a law-centered mentality. That the centerpiece of the very center of the epicenter of his life was centered upon the centrality of obeying these laws. You know anybody like that? They got law for everything. But centrally speaking, we might say Paul was a slave to the law in a sense. And yet, his whole perspective gets changed when he meets the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, on the way to to Syria in Acts chapter 9. It was quite a shipwreck, quite a stormy gale upsetting the epicenter of his law-centered mentality. He meets Jesus, and his life is forever changed. Paul becomes one of the greatest heroes of our existence, worthy of a hero's welcome into the history books and into our table conversations for generations to come. And he did so. What's the big secret? He did so becoming one of the greatest heroes of our existence, first by reshaping his theology according to the risen Jesus. And that's what we have to do when we come to, to know God. When we come to experience Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we, we have to recalibrate how we see ourselves and how we see the world because we've got this God who loves us tremendously. And how are we going to respond to that? That's what we have to figure out. The good news he experiences is different from what he felt was good news when he was a Pharisee. And isn't that what happens when we begin to follow Jesus? All the things that we thought were like so important and so valuable and so alluring and and enticing. When we begin to follow Jesus, maybe just baby steps, one thing at a time, when we put our faith in him and really try to do that, not saying that it's on our own efforts or by our own works, but when we begin to press into a life of faithfulness, those other things don't seem so valuable or alluring or enticing as they maybe were. So let's talk about this. How and why is the good news of God's saving activity in your life? Why is it better 
Or how is it better than any other sort of good news? Ready, go. If you know the story of Paul in Acts chapter 9, he experienced just a radical transformation. He's blinded by the light, and he he completely has this whole life reversal for his life and also for his vocation, for his job. His resume sure got upgraded from Pharisee, which is important. That's a part of his past. You know those former jobs that you and I have both had are really important in shaping who we are and maybe where we're going. Whether you're a YMCA camp counselor or whether you're a spandex-clad slave at medieval times, not to mention (laughs) any names right there. (laughs) They're important, right? They shape us, you know? They they show us like, man, I never want to be a slave at medieval times or... They, you know, put us on the right trajectory of a place or direction that we want to go. Well, Paul goes from Pharisee to, check it out, here's the list. Evangelist, apostle, church planter, exorcist, healer, discipler, preacher, tent maker, theologian, and writer of the 13 of the 27 works of the New Testament. What works are we talking about? Paul's letters. Paul's letters always address and respond to real life situations. Isn't that great? We don't want just like theoretical knowledge about how this could help. But these actually, these letters that Paul writes, they they address and respond to real life situations. They're profound and theological but they're also down-to-earth and practical and gut-wrenchingly honest. They encourage believers to live with thanks to God's grace in Christ within their particular situation in life. And not just in the first century context, but that's why we read the Bible today. That's why the most important thing that I have to say tonight comes from the Scripture. Paul's letters aren't, aren't merely Christmas cards Or letters to grandma thanking her for these too short and too high running shorts she got me. But the letters are God-breathed and useful for instruction. So then what's this letter all about? This letter to the church at Rome. Let's talk about Romans. It's the longest and most theologically dense letter written by Paul. It's essentially a debate between the Pauline gospel, which is Paul's interpretation of the good news of Jesus Christ, and Judaism. Here's a quick outline of Romans as Paul's step-by-step analysis of human sinfulness, both Jewish and Gentile, God's solution, opening the doors to the Gentiles, God's ongoing commitment to Israel in chapters 9 through 11, and then the practicalities of Christian life in, in chapters 12 through 16. But overall, Romans carries this big theme, an overall theme of God's unfailing faithfulness to his ancient covenant with Abraham. They're like, what are you talking about? What is a covenant, first of all? Well, that's like a promise, but it's more than a promise. It's a promise made by God and God in union with a smaller partner, right, with, with Abraham. But it's not something that God can or will ever break. 
God's unfailing faithfulness to his ancient covenant or super important unbreakable promise with Abraham. Well, let's take a look at what this promise actually talks about. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. God speaks to Abraham, who at the time was named Abram. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Uh, Fun factoid trivia, uh, the, the chapter before this was the whole Tower of Babel, where the people were trying to make their own name great. Oh, here comes God saying to Abram, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, underline, highlight, circle that, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, traditionally, the the main overall theme of of Romans has been justification by faith rather than by works of the law. What does that mean? In other words, we are made right in our relationship with God because of what Jesus does on the cross. We're made right with God by faith. But the question becomes, whose faith? My faith or the faithfulness of Jesus Dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. Yeah, both, right? Because it takes both our faith and his faith. But this justification by faith rather than by works of the law is, in my opinion, secondary secondary to the broader theme of God's overall intention to reunite all humanity in Christ, which is ultimately God's unfailing faithfulness to his ancient covenant with Abraham, what we read about in Genesis 12. And justification is the means to that end. A lot coming at you right there, but we'll wrap it all up so you'll understand. But now a major issue that Paul addresses in the letter is something that maybe we experience today in a different way. But one of the the issues is why do the Gentile, non-Jews, prosper while God's own elect people, the Jews, languish. Maybe you see that person at work or at school. You're like, man, they definitely don't follow Jesus. And I can tell you all the reasons why. But they're getting blessed. Or it seems like they are. Or their life is just so good. Why does my life feel like it's in tatters compared to theirs? Well, that seems to be a similar question here. If the Gentiles are allowed into membership, into the church, without conforming their lives to Torah and without adopting Jewish ethnic markers like cutting your penis, also called circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and kosher food laws, what's the point of being Jewish? Paul says, well, much in every way. Because Israel, as Abraham's descendants, Israel has been given the task of what? Being a blessing to the nations and winning the hearts of all the nations for their creator, for God. And Israel may have lost this vision and failed in their calling, but God hasn't forgotten and God hasn't failed. In fact, God's righteousness, that is his unfailing faithfulness, in keeping the covenant promise, has been revealed in the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, in his faithfulness to death, 
So Paul, as we see, will spend a good amount of time fleshing out and resting on the circumcision and Sabbath stuff. Do you see what I did right there? Do you see what I did? No, Josh did. But, but to whom is he writing? Who is Paul writing to? And from where and when and what's the date, origin, and audience? Simple answer, Paul's letter was probably written to the Jewish Gentile house churches of Rome in the winter of 57 or 56 AD during the three-month period that he spent in or around Corinth, south-central Greece. Well, how, how do we know this? In chapter 16, Paul mentions his host, Gaius, and he also mentions Phoebe, this female house church leader from the nearby town of Centraea. But for what purpose, then, is Paul writing? We figured out a bunch of stuff. But why is Paul writing? Well, Paul is writing to ask the Roman house churches to help. He's planning. He needs help planning and with logistics to support a mission to Spain. He's also writing to lay out a clear teaching on the gospel he preached, which was designed to unify the competitive house churches in Rome so that, hey, maybe they would be united in this endeavor and and be cooperative in this. Paul's also writing to bridge the cultural divide between Jewish and Gentile believers because the power of the gospel is able to achieve that unification and bringing all people, all nations together. And that is ultimately the goal and heart and mission of Romans. So now let's begin. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It begins in the Greek text, Paulos doulos, Paul a slave, or literally Paul slave. That's how it begins. Paul slave, or as our translations would write, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Greek, euangelion theou, God's gospel or the good news of God. I think it's really important to understand Paul's words in their own context as best as we can before ripping it out and trying to apply it to our situation because we may not understand it. But Paul opens up his letter by calling himself doulos here. What we see translated as slave, sometimes servant, or even bondservant of Jesus. And now, I don't know about you, but when I think of slave, I think of the, the terrible slavery carried out in the cotton fields and on the plantations of America's past. When I think of slave, I think of the terrible slavery plaguing our world today, where there are 40 million people enslaved right now. About 20 million are trapped in labor slavery. About 5 million are exploited in sexual slavery. About 15 million are enslaved in forced marriages. Women and girls account for 71% of the total. Children about 25%. And some 89 million people have experienced some form of modern slavery in the past five years or a few days. And what are we going to do about it as a church? And don't just tell me pray, because that's important. But we need to do more. 
With that said, our conception of slave is certainly skewed when it comes to understanding Paul's language of doulos here. For a doulos, in Paul's language, a slave servant or a bond servant is one who sells himself or herself into the slavery or servanthood of another. It's estimated that at the time of Christ, Rome had a, a population of about one million people with between 15 or 30% of the population as slaves. Wow, many in the ancient Roman world became slaves because of Rome's conquering of nations or kidnapping or being born into slave households. The background for being a slave of Jesus Christ is best described by the Old Testament scriptures. For a Jew, this concept of being a doulos in Greek or evid in Hebrew, it didn't mean drudgery, but actually honor and privilege. It was actually used to describe the nation of Israel at times, like in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. But it's especially associated with the big dogs of the Old Testament. Moses, David, and Elijah were all slaves or servants of the Lord. Now, we're just used to our Bibles saying servants because it sounds nicer. It sounds more politically correct. But it's how Paul begins his letter to the Romans. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. In the year that Paul wrote Romans 1.1, saying this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news, euangelion, theu, the gospel of God, the Roman emperor named Nero was the self-proclaimed Lord of the nations and Savior of the Roman world. When Nero came to power in 54 AD, he proclaimed the euangelion, the gospel or good news of his own rise to the throne. In other words, ah, good news, I'm here. Now at last there will be peace and prosperity. This is nothing new. Every new Caesar took on this approach. And it's fully in this context that Paul now proclaims his gospel, the gospel of God, rather than the gospel of Nero. Yeah, that's dangerous. <laughs> the reality that a man, the God-man, named Jesus from the Palestinian village of Nazareth is now made Lord and Messianic King as promised in the Holy Scriptures and affirmed by his resurrection from the dead. Paul's euangelion, theu, his gospel of God, the good news of God was not simply an invitation to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. It was no invitation at all, but simply a blunt fact. Like it or not, Jesus is Lord and Savior. This is the good news. It's something you accept or reject. It was a message of political subversion, of high treason, extremely dangerous, but it's true. Within six or seven years of Paul's writing his letter to Rome, the blessed Nero would illuminate his Circus Maximus, the ancient Roman chariot raceway, and 
mass venue of entertainment, he would illuminate the Circus Maximus with crucified flaming Christians. Quite possibly even some of the people named in Romans chapter 16. Nero set fire to these Christians as scapegoats for his own burn and rebuild urban modernization. But for them, being on fire for Jesus had quite a different meaning than it might for zealous Jesus followers today. Paul himself would be executed under Nero. But this is what makes the resurrection so important to us. Yesterday, I, I was visiting a man who, who looked me square in the eyes and told me, without a stutter, without hesitation, he said, I am not afraid to die. I am not afraid to die. And he sat there in a hospital bed, enjoying his penne pasta and meatballs, unfazed by the diagnosis of advanced prostate cancer and fluid gathering in his lungs. I'm ready, he said. And his wife, in her sweet as honey, smooth as molasses southern accent, replied, well, I'm not. I said, yeah. Had we been residents of a different era, perhaps one of the million in Rome at the time of Nero, I think he would have been the type like Paul, unfazed and without fear of the consequences, actually able and willing to look Nero straight in the eyes and say, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And this is the Evangelion Theu. This is the good news, the gospel of God. Verses 1 through 2 say, This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle, chosen and with purpose, and sent out to preach his good news, that is God's gospel, God's saving activity throughout all time, space, and eternity, which ultimately culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and that's why the Old Testament is so important. This is nothing new. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel was promised long ago. The gospel was not something made up. Trying to sort out, uh, what do we do about this death of Jesus? I mean, we thought he was the Messiah and then he died. Some say he rose from the grave. You know, he showed himself to 500 people, but 500 people, man, they could say anything, right? But Jesus died, you know, are we trying to make a best of a bad situation? No, this was God's plan, the gospel from the very beginning. So let's do some table talk. What is the gospel? Why is it good news? And explain it as if you're explaining it to someone for the very first time. Go ahead. All right, let's finish the thought and we'll bring it back together here. You can also continue this conversation after as well. But we'll continue with verses 3 and 4 now. It says, The good news is about his son. 
The good news is about his son, that is God's son. Jesus is the centerpiece of the epicenter of the gospel. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And that's why the Old Testament is so important. He's born into the royal line of David. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the name Jesus speaks of his humanity. The title Christ, that's not his last name, the title Christ shows his, his divinity. He is deliverer. He is Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. Our Lord also affirms his deity, his godness. Lord also affirms that, that he's master, a master worth being doulos or slave to. But these verses also show the stages of existence of Jesus Christ our Lord, pre-existent, before all time and space and eternity, incarnation, easy way to remember that is carne asada, in the carne, in the meat, in the flesh, and exaltation, when he is raised by the Holy Spirit to life again. Verse 5 says, through Christ, God has given us the privilege, not the demand or the terrible task, but privilege and opportunity and authority, that is the credentials, as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. That's the goal here, reuniting all humanity in Christ. Verses 6 through 7 says, And you, that is you Romans, are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. You have been welcomed in. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. In the face of life's shipwrecks and stormy gales, where the circumstances of life leave us wobbly with constant vertigo and unbalanced on our own two feet, I pray that regardless, we would know that God loves us. I pray that we would receive God's grace and peace with a hero's welcome in our hearts and in our minds, in the style of kings and of emperors, I pray that we would make the effort to go out, to be open, to be eager for the good news of God, and that we would welcome him in. I remember the first time I walked the streets of Rome. I passed under the shade of an old world, maybe first century aqueduct. Walked along the rickety cobblestone streets, all the while realizing I'm walking where Julius Caesar walked. I'm walking where Caesar Augustus walked, and Raphael, and Michelangelo, and of course, with almost a holy reverence, I'm walking where the Apostle Paul walked. The second time, I walked through the streets of Rome years later. I realized that Paul probably didn't care. 
He probably didn't care about his legacy, you know, and that people would, would walk here on the streets that he walked. Because what he cared about most was the good news going forth that we would realize that God loves us and saves us. And that's the message we'll learn from Romans. As complex and as abstract as it gets, God loves us and saves us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that on all the streets we walk, you walk with us. You are faithful to your covenant and promises. And as we open up Romans, as we read it at home, on the go, in the car, as, as we have it on audiobooks or whatever it is, Lord, I pray you would do your work in our lives. That it wouldn't end here that our reading of Romans and the impact that it can have in our lives because it is your word, your very breath, I pray that it would not just fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts, but that we would receive it with our hearts and ears and our lives would be transformed in radical ways just as your servant, a slave, your bondservant, Paul, was changed. We want that change. So help us to be faithful. Thank you for your love, your grace, and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.